This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Young people are going far beyond pulling their weight and should be fully included in shaping climate policies. Policymakers, let's provide a seat at the table of those who are driving change. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. We're pleased to bring you another episode of our Women's History Month collaboration with Girl Security, where we're facilitating conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. Today's guest interviewer is girl security scholar Elinka Drondo, who discussed the climate gender security nexus with Molly Kellogg, a gender climate and security advisor at the United Nations Environment Program. Elinka and Molly, thank you so much for joining us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But first, let's learn a little bit more about how did you first become interested in the nexus between climate, gender, and security? Thank you so much for having me. I first began taking climate action in 2019. I was inspired by Greta Thunberg, and I began mobilizing my community and leading the youth climate strikes in my state. I soon began to realize that young women leaders were on the forefront of the movement for climate action worldwide, but they were also being disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis. And this, along with other gender inequalities that I both noticed and experienced, motivated me to begin advocating for gender equality with the organizations Girl Up and the UN Foundation. I've been especially passionate about the connection between environmental justice and women's empowerment, and I strongly believe that we cannot achieve one without the other. I was really grateful to be a National Security Fellow with Girl Security this past semester, and it really allowed me to unite these issues that I'm passionate about and examine how they relate through a national security lens. As part of the national security strategy I wrote with the other fellows, I worked on a chapter with recommendations for a more intersectional approach to climate security. That's terrific, Alinka. What a great insight. And, uh, and your paper was outstanding. I encourage everyone to take a look at it. So coming to those conclusions about the relationship between these issues, how did that lead you to Molly? Why did you specifically want to discuss this topic with Molly? Yeah, as I was researching the connections between gender, climate, and security, I came across Molly's work with the United Nations, and she's written many amazing reports, including one on sustaining inclusive peace on the front lines of climate change, and they were all such valuable and inspiring resources. She's really driven the conversation about how global action needs to connect these three areas to be effective and equitable. And I'm really honored to have the chance to speak with her today and learn more about the powerful work that she's been doing. Well, and we are all privileged to be able to learn from this conversation that you're about to have as well. So with that, over to you. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, Molly. As I said before, you have done incredible work on gender, climate, and security, and I'm really honored to get to hear more about this work and your perspectives. Can you start by telling our listeners briefly about your background and how it brought you to your current role? And what sparked your interest in climate? 
Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for the invitation. I'll start off by just saying it's really an honor to be here and to discuss these issues that are so near and dear to my heart, Alinka, as you aptly pointed out already. I took a bit of an unusual path to arrive at my current role at the United Nations Environment Program. Very much engaging on these issues from a women, peace, and security background. I really started to recognize the linkages between the environment, peace, security, and gender during the early years of my career when I was working in South Sudan on a project to support a statewide women's association in Jongle, which is in the central eastern part of the country, to self-organize. And this was in 2012, so shortly after the country gained independence. One of the first tasks of this women's association I was supporting was to organize weekly meetings at a newly established women's center. And so they did that, but unfortunately, nobody came. So the next step was to figure out sort of why nobody was coming to this women's center. So the association went sort of neighborhood to neighborhood, speaking with women and asking them why they weren't coming to these weekly meetings to engage in this women's movement to inform the development of policies in their country. And again and again, they heard the same story, which was that women simply didn't have time. They were spending their full day trying to make ends meet largely in their natural resources-related roles. So fetching water, walking long distances to fetch water, to put food on the table. And what was really clear from my time there was that conflict had disrupted people's access to key natural resources like fresh water, fertile land, to farm or fields for grazing their livestock. And there were huge numbers of displaced people in areas where they were unable to access land for farming purposes. And there was a sense of, you know, impermanence as well. So people were moving frequently, which meant that they didn't necessarily want to make substantial investments in activities that might take a long time, such as growing crops. I noticed not only was this having implications for people's livelihoods or potentially for conflict as well, but this also had really important implications for women's participation in the peacebuilding process in the country and establishing new governance structures. Women were excluded because making ends meet at home was nearly impossible. It was not until later that I started to realize the added impact of climate change as another factor that kind of contributed to, to limiting resources, particularly in contexts that were already affected by conflict. But the Women's Association that I was working with at this time did something very smart. They donated a large chunk of land to start a community garden in what was a newly established sort of women's center. And women started showing up for these weekly meetings to participate in agricultural activities, because now this was a space not only for women to gather, to participate in policy formulation, etc., but also it served to meet their immediate natural resource-related needs and environmental needs. And so for me, this was the first time where I thought, hmm, interesting, the environment and natural resources can be a risk due to these converging factors of, of climate change and conflict, but it can also be a really important entry point to engage women in peace building and in governance processes. 
And this is a long introduction, but this very much kind of describes the spirit of my work at the UN Environment Programme which is grounded and kind of shifting the narrative so that environmental management, natural resource management in the context of climate change and conflict are used as solutions for engaging women in political processes and peace building processes and decision making. Thank you so much. That's such a powerful journey and also just story of how important it is to really create these spaces for climate action and government inclusion that are designed for women and that meet their needs. So through our conversation, I'm looking forward to delving a little more into this nexus between climate, gender, and security. Can you begin by giving us a sort of broad overview of this relationship and how these issues relate? Sure, I will do my best. But let me start by describing sort of the relationship between climate change and security and the way that I understand it through my work. And it's really important to recognize that there are no direct linkages between climate change and insecurity. So in other words, climate change does not cause conflict, but they are indirectly linked. And this is the way that we understand these issues. First of all, climate change hazards can exacerbate key drivers of conflict or insecurity, such as through negative impacts on livelihoods, particularly in rural areas, or through the destruction of essential resources through the destruction of essential infrastructure, such as roads or buildings. And at the same time, we know that conflict and insecurity can undermine the capacity of communities to adapt to climate change. So limiting the availability of or access to essential adaptation resources. This might be economic, these might be environmental, etc. In conflict and climate-affected contexts, these risks can exacerbate each other, kind of creating a negative feedback loop. And gender is one factor that shapes how people experience uh, both conflict and climate-related risks. So, for example, gender norms or expectations or power dynamics might determine how men and women use or manage resources that are affected by climate change or conflict, such as water or different roles in agriculture. The gender norms might affect what economic opportunities women and men have access to, such as finding a job or receiving economic support. It impacts physical mobility in many contexts, um, decision-making, household or community expectations, such as expectations to earn income or to collect water or to provide food. So gender impacts the way people experience both conflict and climate change in different ways. And there's a couple of points that I would just emphasize here. First of all, when we talk about gender, we don't just mean women. And this is a really important point. And Alanka, I like what you said at the beginning in shifting the narrative to focus on an intersectional approach. This is very, very important part of the narrative. So first of all, it doesn't just mean women. Men have a gender too. We often forget that in the conversation, but the experiences that men and women face in contexts of climate change and conflict depend on a multitude of factors. The second point I'd like to emphasize is that when we talk about insecurity, we don't just mean conflict. So insecurity can be, you know, within a household, can be within a community, it can be economic, physical, environmental. And when we think about sort of the linkages between these issues, it's important to keep all of that in mind. So as of now, climate-related security risks 
and insecurities, as you mentioned, have not been integrated into efforts to implement the global women, peace, and security agenda, but at the same time, not many nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement or other climate action plans reference women or gender at all. How do you envision that we can drive this inclusion of climate and gender into these agendas? And what concrete measures do you hope that more nations will add to their plans? Yes, you are absolutely right that we have a long way to go before climate-related security risks are fully integrated into the Women, Peace, and Security agenda or gender into national climate action plans or commitments. But I do want to step back and recognize that there has been quite a bit of progress, particularly at the global level. So, for example, for the last two years, the annual report of the UN Secretary General on Women, Peace and Security included a chapter on the security implications of climate change. And this is new. This is a development. There have also been greater investments in particularly in peacebuilding and conflict prevention programming that specifically address the gender dimensions of climate change. So there is progress and it's important to recognize. But as you rightly noted, there are only some nationally determined contributions that include references to gender or women and an even smaller number of national action plans on women, peace and security include reference to, to climate or the environment. In my vision, focusing on the integration of these issues into policy is really important. But what I would emphasize is what's even more important is the implementation of these issues. What I would like to see is our focus turn more from policy formulation, yes, important, but to action. And how can we support, for example, a transition to clean energy that has a transformative impact on gender equality? How can we leverage opportunities for climate change adaptation to also support women's leadership and governance in peace building and economic structures? Or how can we design climate strategies that respond to the needs and capacities of indigenous communities, of youth, of disabled populations, of women, men, etc.? It is really important to have a policy framework that enables the development of solutions that work kind of in different contexts that are locally grounded and that do integrate the very many dimensions that impact the well-being of, of people in different countries. Thank you so much. It's definitely encouraging to hear about the progress that we've been making in terms of this integration. And I definitely agree with the importance of transitioning from policy to action. And I especially appreciate all the different ideas you have. As you mentioned before, climate change is not only a threat in and of itself, but it's also a threat multiplier, and it exacerbates a lot of existing causes of insecurity. What do you believe are some of the most pressing security risks that the climate crisis exacerbates? And what are some of the considerations at the top of your mind when you're training policymakers to understand and respond to these risks? Climate change impacts, as I mentioned earlier, very many different dimensions of what we would call human security. First and foremost, I think livelihoods and food security, particularly in rural areas where people's livelihoods depend on reliable access to quality natural resources, land, water, etc. Climate change can also impact competition over natural resources, it can have geopolitical consequences. We know that climate change does not see national borders, for instance. So where ecosystems are shared between countries or between regions that are threatened by climate change. This can have important security consequences or consequences for relationships between countries or regional dimensions. 
The destruction of critical infrastructure, which I mentioned before, due to the extreme weather events or rising sea levels can have really important consequences for the well-being of people who rely on those critical infrastructures. Forced displacement or migration as a result of this combination of conflict and climate change. And then there's also the unintended consequences of climate change adaptation. So the things that we don't know are going to happen, for example, as we shift our energy sources, what are going to be the security implications of that? What role do women play in different peace-building contexts that are related to climate change-driven conflict or natural disasters? Can you share some experiences from the projects you've worked on at the UN? And how do you think we can achieve more women's leadership and inclusion in these spaces? This is a good question. And I'll start off by saying that just as the experiences that women and men have as a result of climate change, the roles that women play are, of course, extremely context specific. Even within a city, within one one community, women play very different roles often related to climate change and conflict. But I'll share two examples from my work at the United Nations Environment Program. We have two different projects. First, I'll share an example from Nepal, and then I'll share an example from Sudan. Nepal is very much a post-conflict context, and our project location is in the western part of the country, in the Karnali River Basin, which is experiencing more frequent extreme weather events and flooding as a result of climate change undermining the livelihoods of farmers in the region. And this is also an area where seasonal migration to India or to other larger cities in Nepal has been practiced to supplement income, particularly among young men. So migration is not new to the area, but what we have learned is that more people are now migrating and they're migrating for longer periods of time. And this has particular implications for the men who migrate, but also for the women who tend to remain behind. And then in North Kordofan, Sudan, which was the site of another small project that we had, this is an area that is home to both pastoralists and farmers, where migration is very much sort of woven into the fabric of society, particularly for nomadic pastoralists who have traditionally practiced forms of movement to cope with seasonal or climactic changes. But now, due to the scarcity of natural resources like water, land, pastoralists have altered or changed their migratory patterns. And at the same time, farmers have changed the way they use the land. This has really distinct implications for gender. So within pastoralist groups, families are more often splitting. So men are continuing on their migration while women are staying behind. And within farming communities... Men are increasingly as well migrating away in search of livelihoods. So these are two very different contexts, but in both cases, we find that there is sort of an out-migration of men in search of alternative livelihoods, and women who remain behind are tasked with new sort of natural resource-related roles, new governance roles, etc., So what do solutions look like, and how can we achieve more leadership in these contexts? In both contexts, one approach for sort of enhancing women's leadership was to first support their economic empowerment. In Nepal, this included things like providing resources for climate-resilient livelihoods, 
So there's one story of a woman whose husband migrated away. She remained behind in this village. Her traditional livelihoods of farming were no longer viable. So the NGO that we supported through this project provided her with small startup funding to start a small restaurant. And as a result, her husband was able to come back and live with her and engage in a business that was not immediately threatened by climate change. And in Sudan, similarly, we found that kind of engaging women through climate resilient livelihoods, providing economic support was an excellent first step to engaging women then in sort of local governance structures around natural resource management, which then had spinoff effects to women engaging more actively in other kind of political structures. So this looks different in different places, but what is absolutely critical is to ensure that any sort of policies or programs seeking to address these issues are informed by really locally grounded analysis and understanding of what the different climate, gender, and conflict dynamics are. Thank you so much for sharing these examples. I think they really illuminate how different contexts impact gender, conflict, and environmental issues. And I especially liked just the emphasis on that bottom-up approach that really takes into consideration the struggles of different communities. When I was conducting my research with Girls' Security, I came across the UN's Gender, Climate, and Security Report, and you authored a chapter in it discussing women's role in addressing urban climate fragility risks. This report was incredibly helpful and illuminating, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on the situation in Sierra Leone, which is a powerful example of how environmental initiatives can be an entry point for women's participation in local governance. Yes, this was based on research that I conducted in Freetown, Sierra Leone, in collaboration with the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security. Freetown is a city in which there are a number of different risks converging that impact sort of residents' vulnerability to climate change risks. Freetown has a very unique topography. It is surrounded by very steep hillsides and has a long coastline, which makes it particularly vulnerable both to sort of extreme weather events, so extreme harsh storms, increasingly harsher and more frequent storms, as well as sea level rise. And it has also experienced very rapid and unplanned urbanization, particularly in the wake of Sierra Leone's 11 years of civil war, which ended in 2002, which really outpaced the government's capacity to plan for and absorb the influx of new residents. As a result, the city saw the construction of informal settlements the city also has experienced unsustainable environmental practices. So logging, stone mining, sand mining, which further degrade the soil's capacity to absorb these heavy rains or to manage sea level rise. And it has a, a history of, of gender inequality. There is a really strong women's movement in Sierra Leone, but there are still low levels of women's representation in government. Women experience lower levels of education, fewer economic processes. So you have all these converging risks that leave people living, particularly in the city's informal settlements, which tend to be built in the city's most exposed and vulnerable areas. So along the city's coastline or up these steep hillsides, particularly exposed to climate change risks. 
We tend to focus on the risks and particularly who is most vulnerable. And this is really important for policy. So we make sure that we are putting resources where they are needed most. But this can also reinforce narratives that are unhelpful in many ways or fail to recognize what is working already. In this research, I kind of wanted to flip that narrative, and I was interested in seeing what people in informal settlements are doing already to enhance their resilience. What is working? Who is leading the charge? Who is leading change? And I found that actually people are doing a lot, and particularly women in informal settlements, where formal government services or structures are particularly lacking. So there's a great example in the report of the Federation of Rural and Urban Poor, which is a volunteer network of more than 3,000 people. And they self-organize around community savings groups, and they actively engage with the community to collect data, to educate community members on what to do if there is a climate-related emergency, to actively work to make sure that people living in informal settlements have greater access to more resources to respond to emergencies related to climate change. Thank you so much. With all of these experiences and perspectives and values that you've shared in mind, if you were able to set the United Nations climate agenda for the next 10 years and you face no barriers, financial, structural, or otherwise, what change would you enact in regards to climate action and gender equality? Oof, that's a big question. I mean, there's no doubt that first and foremost, what we need to do is cut emissions. And we have the data, we have the evidence, we have the technology. And what we lack is the is the political will. And I'm not sure how to overcome that, except to kind of shift the decision-making power to include people who are the most affected, to engage youth, to engage women, to ensure that Indigenous populations have a seat at the table and are shaping the way decisions are made. And as we do this, we really need to ensure that we are enabling just solutions for climate change adaptation, because we know that mitigation is going to take a long time and we see the impacts of climate change unfolding around us. So particularly where other crises exist, where crises related to conflict exist. So I think I would focus over the next 10 years on supporting and enabling locally driven solutions for climate change adaptation providing more direct funding to local organizations, to women's organizations, to indigenous organizations, to small private sector organizations in affected countries to develop and drive their own adaptation strategies. Thank you so much. I definitely hope to see that kind of action being taken soon. And it's inspiring to see that it's already beginning to be part of our agenda. I do have one final question. As I mentioned earlier, over the past few years, youth around the world have been demanding climate action through the youth climate strikes and other global movements centered on environmental justice. So I was wondering if you had any advice for youth leaders who are working to drive change? My advice is to keep on fighting, to keep on doing exactly what you're doing. Um, there's no doubt that youth have been driving climate action around the globe. And for me, it's been really inspiring to watch Fridays for the Future and to watch just the movement transforming. So I can only urge policymakers to listen, to include youth fully in the conversation. Young people are picking up the slack that leaders in power have failed us so far, and that's not fair. So young people are going far beyond pulling their weight and should be fully included in shaping climate policy. So 
just keep on keeping up the fight. And to policymakers, let's provide a seat at the table of those who are driving change. Thank you so much. I think those are all the questions that I had for our conversation today. I just wanted to say how grateful I am to have gotten to hear from you. And I'm very inspired by all of the amazing work you've been doing. Thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.